Let's uh, bow our heads for prayer. Father, we know this morning when we opened our eyes that that first breath we took was a gift from you. To think that we were worthy of nothing but death, and here the human race is 6,000 years into rebellion, and you cling to us because you love us, and you've developed a plan to save this world. Father, how exciting to be a part of that plan. Oh, how we love you when we understand that you've moved heaven and earth, given your Son for us. It fills our hearts with hope and joy. Today we want to think about how to speak to the world and share that message. And we want to give you praise and glory for what happens today. I ask that you forgive my sin this morning. Cover me with the blood of Christ. Enable me, Father, to think clearly. You know that's a challenge for me in the mornings. And I just pray that what we say and do would be to the glory of Jesus Christ. In His precious name we pray it. Amen. Amen. There's a tendency. Many people believe the Dutch invented the microscope. There's a tendency when you're looking through a microscope. What was Anton von Leeuwenhoek, I think, invented the thing? Looked through the telescope and he discovered something marvelous. He discovered germs. And it was a whole new world. But there's a tendency when you're looking through a microscope to live in the world of the germs and forget to come back out and look at the results on people. You can live in a microcosm. You can study detail and forget the big picture. And what I want to do with today's subject is we're talking about this phenomenon of postmodernism. I want to get away from the microscope. You spent several hours now on the microscope looking at fine detail and so on. I want to lift up above it and look at the big picture and take a look at it from God's perspective. And uh, I think that's important. We get so caught up. There have been so many books written about how do we appeal to the modern generation and the secular mind and so on. And what happens is we get so bogged down in the details and we study them and debate them and discuss them and we never get back out in the street winning people. And I want to avoid that. Amen. There's the trap of studying a subject to death but never doing anything about it. And I want to get away from that this morning. So let's get into this. If I can get this, I got remote upside down. It works better this way. Question is, what is postmodernism? You've been in this class four hours. Somebody tell me, what is it? What is postmodernism? Somebody take a risk and tell me. What's true for you is not necessarily moral relativism. Absolutely, it's a component of it. What else? What else do we know? You've been doing it for four hours. Anything else that you remember at all? There is no God. There is no God. That, we need to make sure that that's a mental supposition and not a declaration. But yeah, no God. Here's the problem with the whole postmodern movement. The movement is new. I mean, really what people talk about when they talk about postmodernism, it really stems from the early 1990s. I mean, the roots of it run much deeper. The philosophical roots of it run much deeper. But as a movement that the church has been looking at, it's really from the early 1990s. So one of the problems is our definitions are really fuzzy. We don't really know what it is. It's kind of like trying to write a book about the Bush presidency after one term. It's not finished yet. We don't know where it was headed. We don't know what the long-term ramifications are. It's, you know, they're really not going to be able to analyze Bush's presidency for another 20 years accurately when they can look back at it and see the big picture. It's kind of like that with postmodernism. It's this movement that people sense is happening and growing, 
but it's not far enough in that we can clearly define it yet. It's kind of like when I was a kid, it was the hippies. How many of you remember hippies? Yeah, you're giving something away when you raise your hand. <laughs> uh, remember hippies? We all knew what a hippie was, didn't we? Long hair, smoke pot, live in a VW van, tie-dye t-shirt, right? We knew what a hippie was, but we really didn't know what that movement was about till it was over and people started going back and looking at it. One of the things we discovered invariably about the whole hippie movement is that it was a fad and it came and went. I'm going to be bold enough to suggest to you this morning that the postmodern movement will prove to be the same way. It will come and go. How do I know that? Prophetically I know that and I'll demonstrate it to you over the course of the class. We don't really know what it is. We know who postmoderns are, we kind of have a vague sense of it, but we don't really know what it is. What do we know about it? What do we know about it? Well, it's a reaction against modernism. What is modernism? Well, we got to back up and I'm going to teach you a five-minute world history class. When the barbarians, my ancestors, attacked Rome, and these are my ancestors, Teutonic tribes of Europe, the Germans, the Dutch, <laughs> I'm, I'm of Dutch descent. When the barbarians attacked Rome, they lit it on fire. They enjoyed burning it down. Go back and look at the classical paintings. What were the barbarians doing when they attacked Rome? They burnt it to the ground. All the paintings have all the buildings burning. And one of the things they burnt were the libraries because a bunch of illiterate barbarians really were only interested in the money and a number of other things and they didn't care what was in the library and they set it on fire. Bye bye library. The problem with that is that Rome was the focus of the world as far as learning went. Everything that the world thought was important to know were in Roman libraries and in the library down in Egypt and so on. But really the focus of all learning through the ages, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, was all collected in the, the barbarians set it on fire. They didn't care. So now we're in danger of losing all the learning the world had accumulated to that point. We lost uh, science, we've lost philosophy, math, all the stuff they're studying. And this is why they often, if, if you talk to secular historians, they call that period the Dark Ages. We call it the Dark Ages for a number of other reasons, but the lights kind of go out. People aren't studying anymore and all the knowledge is in danger of being lost. All of a sudden, way across the European continent, this illiterate tribe known as the Celts suddenly wakes up. Suddenly wakes up. The Celts were spread all over Europe. When, what country do you think of when you think of the Celts? Everybody thinks of Ireland. They used to live everywhere. They used to live in Asia Minor. The church in Galatia was made up of Celts. Anytime you see G-A-L, those were Celts. France was known as Gaul. They were Celts. Portugal had Celts. You go anywhere you see G-A-L, those were the Celtic peoples, including the church in Galatia. They were Celtic peoples. Eventually they migrate to where Ireland is, and as the Dark Ages are falling on the earth, all of a sudden there's this little boy in England who gets kidnapped by Irish pirates. Anybody know his name? Patrick of Ireland. He's not really of Ireland, he's of England. He got kidnapped. He's kidnapped, he's forced to work as a slave for some shepherds, and he escapes. He runs back to England. When he gets back to England, he becomes a Christian. And he comes under this heavy conviction that he needs to go back to Ireland and teach the Celts something, teach them about Jesus. He goes there, he raises up a church. We all know historically what day of the week did that church worship? Sabbath. Uh, Columbus, uh, Columbanus rather, and St. Columba worked in Scotland, and they raised up a university. Here's what happened. All the learning 
that was destroyed in Rome, the Irish starting, suddenly start running around Europe collecting it, and they preserve all the learning of the ages, math, science, philosophy, so on, and they preserve the scriptures. The church, the Christian church, moves into the church in the wilderness period. They're hiding, the Waldenses and so on. And the dark ages ensue. All the learning is centered in the strangest places, the Piedmont Valley, Ireland. And then the Reformation takes place. And the knowledge starts coming back out. And people rediscover the scriptures, but people also rediscover all that classical learning from the ages, philosophy, Algebra. You can thank the Celts for your algebra classes. It's all recovered as we come out of the Reformation period. Then the world moves into what has often been called the Enlightenment period when they start rediscovering things like science and logic and so on. And man got this idea in the modern period. I hate the fact that we call what's supposedly over the modern period. It doesn't make any sense. But the modernism starts. Out of the Enlightenment, man starts looking at the universe like a machine. We start thinking we can conquer anything using our brains. We can use logic to get anything done. We can tackle any problem, anything at all, and we think of the whole universe like a machine. It was pretty good thinking in the beginning, right? Romans 1. I hope you brought Bibles this morning because you're going to want them. Romans chapter 1. Let me ask you, is the class making sense so far? All right. What does it have to do with postmodernism? You'll see. Romans 1.20. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. When science re-erupted in the Enlightenment period, when it came back to the forefront, man had a very particular idea. He believed that you could study the universe and discover order behind the universe because God made it. So, science originally was a way of discovering God. That's the way it started. Isaac Newton, one of the most brilliant examples. Isaac Newton discovered what theory? Relative. Gravity, that's right. The theory of gravity, you know, the, the story goes, an apple fell on his head as he's under the tree and he wonders what makes the apple drop to the ground and so on. He was a sincere Christian. One of his major accomplishments was a rather extensive commentary on Daniel and Revelation. It's one that not many people get to lay eyes on. There is an original copy in a library in Loma Linda, and it was, I, I got to tell you, I had it in my hand. If I've ever been tempted to covet something, it was that one. Uh, oh, where did, my, where did my charts go? All right. He describes the universe like a machine. You go back and read Isaac Newton, he said, how could we not believe in God? The solar system runs like a clock. This is where we first get the idea of a clock and a watch as an analogy for creation. We look at the universe as a machine, and we believe there is order in that universe to be discovered because we believe God made it. So in the beginning, it starts out well. Descartes, the philosopher, is another one that I think of all the time. Descartes tried to solve other problems by using reason alone. Does anybody know what phrase Descartes was famous for? I think therefore I am. What was Descartes' problem? Descartes didn't believe he existed. At least he couldn't prove it. How many of you have taken philosophy at college? Yeah. You know, half of what you read in philosophy, you wonder why these people had time for this. Descartes wonders, how can I prove I exist? Now, 
if we can solve everything using reason and logic, I should be able to prove that I exist just using my logic. So he wonders about it. I mean, I'll tell you how you know you exist. Good night. When I was 16, I drove my dad's car off a cliff. And when we hit the tree, I knew I existed. <laughs> when I got home that night and dad talked to me, I knew I existed. I mean, it's not that hard to piece it together. But the philosophers are wondering about this. Now, how do I prove I exist? And so Descartes starts thinking, well, if I didn't have eyesight, I mean, he started wondering these questions like, how do I know? He didn't think of it in these terms, but this is how I'll modernize it. How do I know that I'm not a brain on a table in the universe somewhere and there aren't scientists poking it and they're making my whole experience happen just by poking it? Right? I mean, did you ever wonder questions like, you ever wondered about that? How do I know I'm really here? No, none of you dare admit it now. <laughs> How do I know? Descartes said, if I couldn't see anything, and I can't hear anything, and I can't feel anything, I can't taste anything, take all my senses away. How do I know I exist? He says, well, because even when you take all my senses away, I'm still here thinking about it. I think, therefore I am. They used reason and logic to solve everything, even problems that didn't need solving. Is everybody still with me? Yep. Nod your head if it makes sense. Yes? All right. The problem with it is man got too big for his britches, and what started as a legitimate pursuit of God with science moves into a pursuit of science without God. Interesting that in Romans, in verse 25, it's almost predicted, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator. Now, Paul's talking about something back there in his day, but it's interesting that we repeated the same pattern. It starts as a pursuit of God and nature and science, and then it moves away from God. Science starts leading away from God. We don't look for God anymore. We start to think that our reason is all we need. All we need. Where does this start? Well, Copernicus was a Christian. But he defied a terra-centric view of the universe. What does that mean? Well, he used to believe the world was the center of the universe, that everything in the cosmos revolves around the Earth. And Copernicus, using logic and science, looks out there and discovers, hey, that's not true. The world goes around the sun. Galileo does the same thing. Galileo says the sun is the center of our solar system, not the Earth. Well, the church of the day hauled Galileo into a dark room and said, would you like to reconsider your position? He said, I can't. I mean, I've looked through the telescope. It's pretty obvious we're going around the sun. And then they pulled out some implements of torture, knives and sharp things and stretchy things. And they said, now would you like to reconsider your position? And Galileo said, yeah, sure. And he signed a paper denying the whole thing. And then he went out and taught it anyway. <laughs> what is happening? There starts to be this idea that reason, because the church made some mistakes in the Dark Ages, the church was wrong about this. We started to make mistakes and the idea comes along that reason and faith are opposed to each other. And we start to divorce reason from faith and we start to think that reason is superior to revelation. It's no longer about the pursuit of God. All of a sudden, Darwin comes along and he gives explanations for our existence apart from the reality of a creator God. Do you see what's happening? We re Is everybody with me still? Yes. yes, no, yeah. How many are asleep? <laughs> if you put your hand up, I know you're not asleep. 
Darwin comes along, reason that was first used to find God now is used to explain a world without God. Darwin says, hey, I can explain life without God. You see what's happening? Science wanders away from God. There's a fatal flaw. We get rid of reason, the reason we had for believing in order. We use reason without having the underlying premise that allows for reason. It, does that make a lick of sense? Probably not, but here's what it means. We used to believe in reason because we said there's a God that can be found and he gave us a mind to find him and he tells us to look at nature to find him. Science was the pursuit of God. All right. What happened is we got rid of the reason for using reason. Does that make sense? Yes. Get rid of God and all of a sudden we're left with reason and no foundation for believing in our brains. We used to believe that logic and science and philosophy worked because we would find God at the end and he was running the show. Get rid of God and we don't have any reason to be reasonable or to use our brains anymore. Everybody with me? This is important. It's going to prove important. Some people started smelling a problem. They said, we're going to run into a problem if we get rid of God and just use reason. If man thinks he can do anything he wants, we're going to run into a problem. Early warnings started coming out. Karl Marx made most of the world miserable at one point. He attempts to fix the problems he sees apart from God, and that led to some of the biggest disasters in human rights in the history of the world. He starts looking at what was coming out of reason, the Industrial Revolution. He says, but it's leaving some people behind. Our, our Industrial Revolution hasn't solved suffering. All of our logic and reason and self-advancement hasn't solved anything. He starts waving a flag. There's a problem. He comes up with the wrong solution, still apart from God. Mary Shelley writes a book in 1818 called Frankenstein. Anybody know what Frank... Well, who is Frankenstein? Well, what's the book... You got it, right? Many people assume, Frank, you shouldn't be reading Frankenstein. <laughs> Frankenstein, many people, oh, we know what Frankenstein is. He's the monster. He's got the bolts in his neck and the green skin and the bad hair, right? That's not Frankenstein. It's not even the real monster in the book. Frankenstein is a scientist. He's a doctor. And what does Frankenstein do in this story? Mary Shelley's trying to wave a red flag warning everybody that logic is going to lead to a big problem. If we think about science without God, we're going to run into a problem. I don't even think Mary Shelley was a Christian, but that's the point of the book. What does Frankenstein do? It's disgusting. He goes to the graveyard, he digs up dead bodies, and he stitches all the pieces together, and then he uses electricity to bring that body to life. What is Dr. Frankenstein doing? He's playing God. And Mary Shelley's waving a flag saying the real monster isn't the thing that got stitched together. The real monster is the scientist. That's the real monster. We are headed for big problems if we keep tampering with reason apart from God. We cannot solve everything by just using... These are the early warnings. Where does she get the idea for the book? From a man by the name of Erasmus Darwin. If his last name seems familiar, it's because he is Charles Darwin's granddaddy. And he was in the habit of taking pieces of meat and running electricity through them, trying to make them come alive. <laughs> Stuff you didn't think you were going to learn at GYC. <laughs> and people are horrified. They're saying, this is headed for disaster. Other warnings. Upton Sinclair wrote The Jungle, 1906. 
Brilliant piece of socialist propaganda. That, anyway, my feelings about that aside, starts warning. You know, the other ones. Um, this is about the meatpacking industry in Chicago. He's, he's looking at the working conditions. He's saying, we have not solved everything with our industrial revolution and our intellect. We're creating as many problems as we're solving. Something's missing in the picture. He doesn't even know that's what he's saying. Uh, who's the famous British playwright? Um, no, 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 Dickens, Charles Dickens. Look at his characters. Who is Oliver Twist? Orphan boy gets left behind by the progress of the scientific movement. Ebenezer Scrooge personifies, he, in Charles Dickens' opinion, everything that's wrong with progress. People started warning early that something was wrong. And what happens as we come out of the dark ages and we start to think that our brains are more powerful than God, we don't need a God, our brains will solve the problem, we start hitting the end of the road. And we realize we don't have answers. This is what gave birth to postmodernism. Stick with me. This is going to make good sense, I hope. Nietzsche. Nietzsche was one of the premier philosophers of the 1800s, a German fella. Do not read his books. I want that on tape. From an Adventist preacher, do not read his books. I wasn't raised Adventist, and so I had to read his books in college. He gave birth to a philosophy known as nihilism. How many of you know what nihilism is, right? Nihilism says there's no meaning to the universe. There's nothing out there. Life doesn't mean anything. You can't know anything for sure. This is way back in the 1800s. Nietzsche writes a book called The Antichrist. That should tell you right away that's not good Adventist reading. <laughs> writes another one known as The Gay Science. That word meant something different in 1898. The Gay Science, it's one of his more, let me see, I may actually have, if I was smart, I put a, this should be the only Nietzsche you ever read. Everybody with me? I mean the only quote from Nietzsche you ever read. Don't read anything else, but this is important. He told a story known as the madman. People often accredit this philosopher with the idea that God is dead. He was the guy who said God is dead. He, he's the original one. However, he didn't say it quite the way that people think he said it. He wrote this story about somebody who was frustrated by the fact that the world had given up on God and turned to reason alone. Here's what he wrote. Oh, something's missing here. Why? Here we go. Here's the story he told. Have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran to the marketplace and cried incessantly, I seek God, I seek God. He's writing about somebody looking for God in a world that's giving up on God. Everybody with me? All right. As many of those who did not believe in God were standing around just then, he provoked much laughter. The world laughs at people looking for God. He has got, uh, has he got lost, asked one. Did he lose his way like a child, asked another. Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage, emigrated? Thus they yelled and laughed. You get the premise? Somebody's looking for God and the world says, that's foolishness. That's what was happening. Darwin and others contributed to this. The madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Whither is God, he cried. Now this is important. I will tell you, we have killed him, you and I. Now, is God dead? No. Is Nietzsche saying God is dead? No. Did he believe in God? No, he didn't believe in God either. But he didn't say God is dead. What he is saying is that society killed God. They stopped believing in him. This is where the problems come. 
All of us are his murderers. But how did we do this? How could we drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? Nietzsche is saying we've given up on God. We've declared him dead. But look at the mess we have made. We have unchained the world from the sun. We have nothing left to cling to. That's what he's saying. Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually? Nietzsche said we've let go of God. Now what? What are we going to cling to? We have to have God or something like that or we're going to fall apart. Backward, sideward, forward, in all directions. Is there still any up or down? Oh, nothing new about the postmodern movement. What's true for you might not be true for me. Is there any absolute truth? Nietzsche was asking that question back in the 1800s. Is there any up or down? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Isn't that one of the most forlorn and despondent things you've ever read? It's horrible. Has it not become colder? Is not night continually closing in on us? Do we not need to light lanterns in the morning? Do we hear nothing as yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? This is despondent. He sees the world giving up on God and he doesn't like it. It goes on, it gets very graphic about burying God. Ah, is not the greatness right here? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? There has never been a greater deed, and whoever is born after us, for the sake of this deed, he will belong to a higher history than all history hitherto. What's he saying? We're going to have to make ourselves gods if we don't have one. Everybody with me? All right. Let me keep moving. Does this make good sense to you? Is this helpful so far? You're not sure if it's helpful or not. You came here to learn how to win people who think like this. Let me move. I'm not going to read Nietzsche. Where, you know, that's enough. It made the point, right? Yes? How many of you are still awake? All right. Nietzsche said we're going to have to make ourselves gods if we don't have one. Nietzsche said if we don't have God anymore, then the 20th century will be the bloodiest century in the history of planet Earth said that in the 1890s. Was he right? Oh, yes, he was. Oh, oh no. What have I done? Now we've got to go all the way through that again. Do you want me to read it again or just go through it? Oh, no. This is what happens when you disconnect the earth from the sun. There is no meaning or logic even to the preacher's presentation. All right. Was he right? Absolutely. What was Hitler trying to achieve? To make ourselves gods. To create a super race. He tapped into ancient paganism and he brought on, the 20th century was one of the bloodiest centuries in the history. Uh, more people died in war in the 20th century than in all hit centuries of Earth's history combined. Between Stalin and Hitler. We're looking at, what, 20, 25 million. It's unbelievable how many died. Now, here's what many people don't realize is the direct tie from Darwin to Nietzsche to Hitler. Haeckel's in there, too. Let me look at this. Haeckel was a scientist in the 1800s who lived in Switzerland. 
he comes up with a theory known as ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. How many of you heard that one in school? <laughs> theory of recapitulation. What does he say? He starts looking at Darwin's writings saying, okay, maybe we didn't come from a god, maybe we evolved, and he looks at fetuses in the womb. And Haeckel says, when you, go through, when you go through the process of gestation, when you grow up inside your mommy's tummy, he didn't use that language in the classroom, but you know, that's how I explain it to my nine-year-old. He said, you go through all the stages of evolution when you're in the womb. First you're a fish, then you're a turtle, then you're a lizard, then you're a mammal, then you're a monkey, then you're a man. That's what he said. And here's the chart he used to prove it. Here are all the fetuses. This is a fish, this is a salamander, a turtle, a chicken, a pig. A, I, I left the titles here so I could remember which is which. A calf, a rabbit, and a human. Look at this, he says, look at those embryos. Don't they look remarkably alike? And they do. Right? He says, then they change, and eventually they, every being goes through all its stages of evolution until it becomes what it is. The problem with this theory was that he faked it. All the drawings were a fake. They still appear in high school textbooks today, but he faked it. It's a fake. They're still in high school textbooks now. Open up a high school textbook, this chart's still there. It's a fake. He was dismissed from the University of Jena because they caught him. It's a fake. But it didn't matter. People were so eager to get rid of the idea of God that they latched onto it in spite of the fact they knew it was a fake. What comes of it is absolutely horrible. The idea starts going around that not only, I mean, the idea starts going around that not only do you go through all the animal stages, but that all the races of people are of different value and of different evolutionary status as well. And so some races just didn't spend enough time in the oven. It starts going around. Eugenics, I heard somebody say it. John Langdon Down, Down syndrome. I have an uncle. My, Dad's youngest brother has Down syndrome. What is Down syndrome? It's something of a world record, by the way. My uncle with Down syndrome is just turned 60. That doesn't happen very often. Doesn't happen very often. My uncle Papa, he lives over in the Netherlands. Down syndrome. You're missing a 23rd chromosome. Dr. Down says something's wrong. But what did he originally call it? This is very interesting. We're just going to be honest about this, all right? First they called it Mongoloid. Why? Because he said, well, maybe this is some other race. Are you with me? Follow me carefully. It's ugly truth, but this is what happened when we let go of God, and this is where the intellectual achievements led us. He said, it's some other race. What does that do? Hitler studies this, and he says, you know which race we need to get rid of. I mean, it's survival of the fittest anyway. Let's get rid of the Jews. His philosophy comes straight from Haeckel, Nietzsche, and Darwin. Here are the fruits of human reason without God. That's where it goes, right to the death camps. Is everybody with me still? Now we come out of the 20th century. Oh, reason still. Reason fails us because reason without God led to the greatest atrocities in the history of the world. Everybody following me? Everybody's very quiet. You're still there. Yes. It's very important that I know you're awake, because I'm tired too, and if, if we all nap, I want one too. <laughs> Science hits a dead end. Albert Einstein discovers a surprise. 
Albert Einstein gives us relativity. He looks at Isaac Newton's theory of gravity, and he says, that's pretty good, but it doesn't explain everything. So he comes up with relativity. And relativity explains a lot of things. Now, all of a sudden, we can predict how planets move and stuff. And we can calculate how much Jupiter weighs. And we can figure out all kinds of stuff. And, and it works really, really well, the theory of relativity. The only problem is, is that when they started looking through the microscope down at the itty-bitty world, they discovered that none of the rules of gravity and relativity apply to anything smaller than an atom. It's a different set of rules if something is small. There's more than one set of rules in the universe. It came to the point where Einstein refused to look at atomic theory any further than quantum mechanics and that stuff. He wouldn't because they were discovering stuff. They discovered one little tiny particle could exist in two places at once, and they couldn't figure out how does that work. They would do experiments shining light through a double slit. When you shine lights through two slits, you get an interference pattern on the other side, kind of like when you drop two rocks in the water and the ripples meet each other, you get an interference pattern. Same thing happens with light. What they discovered is that if you fire a single photon of light at those two slits, one at a time, you still got an interference pattern on the other side, even though it was only going through one slit. Somehow one particle went through both slits at the same time, and they're pulling their hair out and they're saying, we don't understand everything. There's something now called string theory. Everybody heard of string theory? That is an attempt to explain why particles are different than planets, and there's two sets of rules for physics. Science hits its end. We think we can live without God and use reason alone, and we get to the end of it, and it's disgusting. It absolutely fails us. We have had death camps. We had World War II. We had the Korean War, the Vietnam War. We had nearly a million people killed in 90 days in Rwanda. We had economic crises from the 87 crash to the crash in the early 90s to the one that we're going through right now. We've got new diseases. Just when we conquer polio and we conquer, uh, what are some of the other ones that we used to struggle with and they don't exist anymore? Polio, smallpox. Just as we conquer those, we get SARS and AIDS. Got a crisis in the Middle East nobody can solve with their logic. We've got the killing fields of Cambodia. We've got famine. We can't seem to solve world famine. We've got religious scandal. All this stuff. We've got Chernobyl. No, we, we're building these nuclear power plants. They'd slated to build 12 of them there in Chernobyl, and number four blows up. Creates a huge disaster. We look at the 20th century, and suddenly there's a generation that realizes our logic and our reason and our intellect is failing us. We haven't solved the problems. Well, we can't anyway. We know we live in a sinful planet, and man's not going to solve that. We're not going to solve it. Jesus solves it. But we let go of God, we clung to our logic, and then our logic failed us. So now we've got a generation that doesn't believe in logic or God. Everybody with me? Is this making sense to you? All right, the conclusions. Modernism, reason has failed to give answers to things like disease, war, and suffering. We have failed to solve the problems using our minds. Right? Another conclusion. There is no meaning to life. We don't have God and we don't have reason. Now what? What is there to cling to? How many of you have heard of a man by the name of Douglas Adams? Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? That ring a bell? Don't go see that or read it either. What's the premise of that book? It, 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 it's a bunch of baloney, but what's the premise? Douglas Adams says, there's this race of beings that builds a giant computer and they ask it, what's the meaning of life? And this big powerful computer works on that question, what's the meaning of life? And after it, I heard it, somebody out there knew, shame on you for going to see that movie. 
Build this giant computer. What's the meaning of life? Computer works on it. Chug, 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 chug. How long was it? Like six million years, right? It works on this problem for six million years, and it spits out the answer. The meaning of life is 42. <laughs> and everybody looks at each other and says, 42? That doesn't make a lick of sense. That's the point. Douglas Adams, the nihilist, Nietzsche, all these people say there is no meaning to life. Nothing. Logic and reason don't work. God doesn't exist. Nothing. Postmodern movement born. The other thing, you heard this from the beginning of the class, there is no absolute truth. A professor by the name of Joseph Fletcher in the 60s and 70s starts teaching that anything can be true as long as you have a good reason for it. Situation ethics. This has gotten so bad, so bad that this is what, oh, look at this one. I use this in evangelistic campaigns. Early on, here's a booklet for teenagers. This is just wonderful material to hand out in a junior high school. Early on in life, you will be exposed to different value systems from your, fa oh, from your family, church, or synagogue and friends. You may accept some of these values without questioning whether or not they are the right values for you. There it is, the idea that there's no right or wrong, there's only what's right for you. See, if you don't have reason and you don't have God, what's left? Just whatever you want. But you may eventually realize that some of these values conflict with each other. It is up to you to decide your own value system. There's the creed of the modern world. To build your own ethical code. You will have to learn what is right for yourself through experience. That's the creed. That's the cry. Why? There's no logic. There's no God. What are you left with? Whatever you want. So you just have to develop your own system of belief and be happy with it. That's the world we live in today. That's what we're living with. U.S. News and World Report, July 22, 2002. Interesting. 73% of students said that when their professors taught about ethical issues, the usual message was that uniform standards of right and wrong do not exist. That's what's being taught in colleges today. I know that for a fact. I, I wasn't a Seventh-day Adventist until, I keep saying 15 years ago, but it's more than that now. Boy, time goes quick. I went to a public university, and I wasn't a Christian. And the stuff they taught us was mind-boggling. Teacher would say, is it wrong to torture a child? We'd say, yeah. And teacher would say, is it always wrong to torture a child? We'd say, yeah. And the teacher would say, what if your car flipped over and your wife's pinned underneath and needs help? And now you go and knock on a farmhouse door and the people inside are scared. They won't open the door and let you call for an ambulance. And then you see their child playing in the yard. Would it be wrong to twist the child's arm to get the mother to open the door? And the answer is still, yeah, that's wrong. But now you have a classroom of people starting asking this question. Maybe it's not always wrong. See how the devil works. He never says outright, never disagrees with God outright. He just raises questions. Did God really say don't eat from the tree? Is it really always wrong? Say confusing the lines. Given a situation, you can make anything right. There's no God and logic is failing us anyway. 10 to 20% of students could not bring themselves to criticize the Nazi extermination of Europe's Jews. They said, well, were the death camps wrong? Well, we don't know. Why didn't they know? Some students expressed personal distaste. We don't like it. But it's not necessarily wrong. Why? They expressed personal distaste for what the Nazis did, but they were not willing to say that the Nazis were wrong. Since no culture can be judged from the outside and no individual can challenge the worldview of another. Oh, oh it's chilling, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> 
that's where we ended up. Let go of God, let go of logic. Now anything can be right. Now we suddenly can't condemn a death camp because, well, after all, how can you condemn a death camp unless you happen to be a Nazi and understand how they feel about it? You see how messed up it got? That's the world we're living in. Here's the big question. What do you do with it? How do you respond to that mindset? Here's how you respond. First thing, you may want to take notes because I don't have handouts. Understand, God knew this day was coming. This mindset, this mentality, this philosophy has not surprised God. He's not surprised by it. He knew it was coming. How do I know that He knew it was coming? Bible says so. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 7. All the way back in Paul's day, Paul writes about the Antichrist. That famous passage in 2 Thessalonians 2. And he says back then, the mystery of iniquity is already at work. That word iniquity, literally, is lawlessness. The Bible predicted a day would come when people would be lawless. They have no moral boundaries. They have no moral foundation. The Bible predicted this day was coming. So we need to take heart as Seventh-day Adventists and Seventh-day Adventist evangelists that God is not unprepared for this. He knew it was coming. God knew it was coming. We can't lose sight of that fact. Why? I hear people say all the time that we have to retool our message, throw away what we've always known worked, and try something new for the postmodern mind. But then we're assuming that God is surprised by the postmodern mind and that somehow God got the three angels' messages wrong. <laughs> Right? I mean, is God surprised by it? No. Is God having a meeting this morning, having all the angels together saying, oh, we gave the church the three angels' messages, and whoops, I mean, we just didn't think about the postmodern mind and that people wouldn't believe in right and wrong anymore, and so we really, God's not going to say He goofed. He knew what He was doing with the message. Amen. Three angels' message will still work. Amen. We have to be intelligent about it. You have to speak a language that people understand. You have to know your audience. But God is not surprised by this. He knew it was coming. 2 Timothy 3. This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. Here it is. Does it mean we change our mind about the task God gave us? No, He's not surprised by it. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. You know, it's remarkable how accurate that one has been, isn't it? When I grew up, which wasn't very long, I really haven't grown up yet, but when I was growing up, kids weren't the center of the house. Now, it's not even a matter of being disobedient to parents. It almost seems like people are worried that parents might be disobedient to the children. Anyway, that's another sermon in another workshop. That's what everybody's worried about. Oh, what does five-year-old Billy want? We better get it for him. <laughs> we really could spend an hour on this one. This one drives me nuts. You ever watch like a five-year-old control their parents at Walmart? It's disgusting. My parents used to bring me before what was called the Board of Discipline. Not in a woodshed. We tried stuff, but you only tried it once in my house. All right, disobedient to parents. Unthankful. We have such a sense of entitlement in this world. Oh, the world owes me something. What I find remarkable, the, the economic crisis is real and it's hurting a lot of people. But what I hear, number one, 
is not fair. I mean, I ran up my credit card to $40,000 and now I'm broke, but that's not fair. We have such a sense of entitlement. Unthankful, unholy, without natural affection. Don't love anybody. Truce breakers. Oh, that one's, what does that mean? People don't keep their word. False accusers. Incontinent. Oh, you know what this one means, right? I mean, it's not what you think. It's not. <laughs> it literally means no self-control. No self-control. Fierce. Despisers of those that are good. There you go. Nothing is right, nothing is wrong, the world says. But if you say, if you choose to, they say any creed counts, live any way you want, unless you're a Christian, of course, and all of a sudden they despise you. All right? Despisers of those that are good. Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers. Question, simple. Was God surprised by the postmodern movement, yes or no? No. Absolutely not. Yet we pretend like God is surprised sometimes and that we need to inform Him of the fact that people don't think like they used to. God knew it was coming, number one. Number two, understand God already has a plan for winning the last generation. I've touched on this. We don't have to come up with a new one. I hear it all the time. Oh, it's a different paradigm. I won't get into the word paradigm. That drives me up the wall. That's a little sermon. I'll let you think about that the rest of the day. Understand God has a plan. He knew it was coming. He already has a plan. We often say, we've got to come up with something new. Now, do we always have to speak language people understand? Yep, we do. I mean, there's no point in me preaching a sermon out of a physics textbook in a kindergarten class. Right? Nobody's going to get it. You know what the number one secret is? I know I meander all over the place in these workshops, but I hope it's helpful. The number one secret, if you want to work with people, is be a real human being. Warts and all. I like Abraham Lincoln. Remember he sat down for the portrait, and he said, I want you to paint me the way I am, warts and all. Just paint it the way it is, the ugly truth. The world is sick and tired of religious know-it-alls. You've probably already studied that people don't like to be persuaded of truth in a postmodern world. They don't mind it. They don't mind it. What they're sick of is religious know-it-alls. They're looking at the failures of Christianity, and they're going to associate you with it whether or not you like it. They're going to associate you with the scandal in the Catholic Church. They're going to associate you with the televangelists of the 80s. You can't help that. They're going to do that. When you're a real human being who's a sinner in need of Christ as much as them, you'll get their ear. You'll get their ear. God has a plan for winning the last generation. Now I turn my remote upside down. Works better the other way. Listen to what the Bible says. Revelation 13, verse 7. It's talking about the beast power. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. Here it comes. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from when? When was the plan of salvation drawn up? Before anybody sinned. God already had a plan for it. You don't have to worry so much about the postmodern mind as you do about the post-Eden mind. Sinners haven't changed. Their needs haven't changed. The language changes sometimes, but the need hasn't changed. Hasn't changed. God drew up a plan before we ever sinned, and He wasn't wrong about it. He never gets it wrong. The Lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. Here's a question I've got for you. 
I hear people say all the time, Oh, the postmodern world, they don't, the secular mind won't listen to a religious sermon. You can't just get out there and preach the Bible anymore, and you can't do this, you can't do that. They don't want religion, they don't want spiritual themes, they don't want religious themes. If that's true, why does the book of Revelation read the way it does? The devil has stirred up all this trouble. He first made us secular, and then we gave up on our reasoning. He led us there. What is he pushing towards? As he gets everybody to give up on reason... What's his plan, his ultimate plan? Well, listen to it, Revelation 13. This is remarkable, and we shouldn't lose sight of this fact. The Christians are saying nobody will listen to spiritual themes or preaching. The devil is going to do this. Revelation 13 and verse 3. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world wondered after the beast, and they worshipped the dragon. What's the devil setting up? A last-day deception. Is he going to put on a postmodern discussion coffee house? Stay with me. Is the devil going to put on a postmodern philosophical discussion coffee house? Yes or no? no? Going to build a religion. And the whole world wanders after it. Verse 12. And he exercises all the power of the first beast before him, causes the earth and them that dwell therein to worship the first beast. He does great wonders so that he makes fire come down from heaven. They worship the bee. It's worship, 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 worship. The final deception is a spiritual deception, and the world falls right into it. The devil is going to hold prophecy seminars. That's what he's going to do. It's prophecy-based. We have a church today that is saying, ah, oh, you can't preach prophecy, and the devil's gearing up to teach prophecy to a world that doesn't believe in anything. Either we have to feel sorry for the devil because he's been planning the wrong deception for 6,000 years, or we should be paying attention. The devil's going to capture the mind using prophecy and spiritual themes in the last days. And God has given us a distinctly prophetic approach to reach those same minds. Should we be experimenting and rewriting how it's done? Absolutely not. The devil is setting up for prophecy and spiritualism, and the world falls for it. And we should be teaching prophecy in the God of heaven. Because the world's looking for it. It's looking for it. Number three, understand that the plan of salvation is something that God does, not us. We think we have to rewrite it and try something new. We don't, because it wasn't our plan to begin with. What time am I supposed to stop? 10.30. Are you finding this useful so far? Yes. All right. <laughs> then we'll keep going. The plan of salvation isn't our plan. It's God's. Let's take a look at this. little Bible study before we end this session. Why didn't the disciples start working the very day that Jesus went to heaven? Good question, isn't it? Why didn't the disciples... I mean, Jesus is on the mountain. He goes back to heaven. He says, I'm going to send you to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth, but not yet. Why not? Wait for the Holy Spirit. Let's have a Bible study. Everybody got their Bible? Everybody still with me? All right. Bible study time. First verse. Acts 1-4. Somebody read that for me in your loudest preacher voice. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. All right. Jesus said, you wait in Jerusalem and wait for the promise 
of the Father. What was the promise of the Father? Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. Actually, can you guys all hear it if people read? No. So you want me to read? Yeah. You did a great job, though. Good preaching voice. All right. Acts 1.4. Wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. Acts 1, verse 8. You're going to love this. This is really cool. All right. Acts 1, verse 8. But you will receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. When did the disciples receive power for ministry? Were they allowed to go without the power of the Holy Spirit? No. How much of the work is dependent on our power? None. And you shall be witnesses unto me, unto me both Jerusalem, Judea, and other most parts of the earth. That's the rest of that passage. Acts 2, verse 33. This one's a trick question. On the day of Pentecost, who received the Holy Spirit? Who, who received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost? I heard all persons. Did the disciples receive it? Trick question. Acts 2, verse 33. Peter is talking about what everybody, everybody's just been speaking in tongues, all the languages of earth. Here's what Peter says. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost. Who received the promise of the Holy Ghost? He's speaking about Jesus. The disciples didn't receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. Stick with me. They did, but they didn't. The primary person to receive the Holy Spirit that day was Jesus. Having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, He has shed forth this which you now see and hear. Jesus gets to heaven, Jesus receives the Holy Spirit, and it sheds off of Him on the church below. Very important. John 7, verse 39. Take a look at this one. How did you find that Acts verse so fast? Have you, like, you have a... That's amazing. I'm like the Apostle Paul. I can't... You know, I've long maintained if anybody can be... If I can be an evangelist, anybody can be an evangelist. I can't find Bible verses half the time when I'm in people's homes. And I turn beet red and I'm looking for the verse and I can't find it. And Some of you know what I'm talking about. You've been with me in the home. And I take great comfort in the fact that Paul says, somewhere it is written, because he doesn't know either. <laughs> Not exactly, right? 7 verse 39, listen. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. So did the disciples receive the Spirit? Yes, they did, but they're not the primary recipients. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Follow this carefully. The Holy Spirit could not be given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Something had to happen before the Spirit could fall and the work of the church could start. Jesus had to be glorified. Now, we often say Jesus came out of the tomb with His resurrection glorified body. Absolutely true. But when was He glorified? Interesting. Revelation chapter... <laughs> I know it when I get there. Five. After a while, you ever had a new Bible and you couldn't find anything again? Yeah. I don't have that excuse. This is my old Bible. Revelation 5. This is important. We'll break when we get through this chapter or through this concept. 
Jesus receives the Holy Spirit. They have no power till he does. The Spirit doesn't come till Jesus is glorified. This is important. This is the advantage Seventh-day Adventists have in this postmodern world. There is something we understand that nobody else on earth does, and here it comes. Revelation 5. I saw on the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. Now, those seven seals are open in Revelation chapter 6. And when those seals are open, the horsemen start riding. The white horse, the red horse, the black horse, the white horse. It's the history of the Christian church. And the history of the Christian church is wrapped up in those scrolls. When the scroll is sealed, okay? And I straw verse 2. The, 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 the seal is the history of the Christian church from John's day to the second coming. Verse 2. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to look upon the book, neither to look thereon. Who was who worthy on earth to open that scroll? Nobody. Verse 4. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and read the book, or to look at it. He starts weeping. The book can't be opened. And if that scroll cannot be opened, Christian history doesn't begin. Following me? White horse, the early Christian church, can't start riding in chapter 6 unless somebody opens that book. And nobody can open it, and John starts crying. The plan of salvation cannot be unfolded as expected, and he's heartbroken. Stay with me. Verse 5. One of the elders said unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and the four beasts, the midst of the elders, stood a lamb. Sanctuary language. Stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. Who is that that just walked into the throne room? Jesus. Jesus. And what does Jesus look like? Lamb. Slain lamb. What is going on in Revelation chapter 5? Christian history cannot be unfolded. It cannot begin. And no man is worthy to launch it. The disciples are told, you don't go anywhere until you receive the promise of the Spirit. And Jesus said that the promise of the Spirit doesn't come until Jesus is glorified. Jesus has just walked into the heavenly sanctuary in Revelation chapter 5 as the slain lamb. And he takes the book and he opens it and now church history can unfold. Jesus is in charge of the plan of salvation. Everybody with me? They sung a new song, verse 9, saying, You are worthy to take the book to open the seals thereof, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred tongue and people and nation and have made us unto our God kings and priests we shall reign on the earth. Revelation chapter 5 is the inauguration of the heavenly sanctuary. In Revelation chapter 5, Jesus comes back with the gift of the cross of Calvary. He's the slain lamb, and he is inaugurated as heaven's high priest. He's anointed as heaven's high priest. What does Peter say? Today, Jesus has been anointed with the Holy Spirit, and it's shed forth on us. Everybody with me? Nothing starts on earth till Jesus is installed as the high priest in heaven's sanctuary. Nothing starts to that moment. Psalm 133, last text in this study. We're going to sew it all together. There's a prophetic psalm there that you need to look at. It's a prophetic psalm, 
celebrating the anointing of Aaron. Who was Aaron? Who was Aaron? Moses' brother. And what was his job? He is a type of who? Christ. Watch this. Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. What was happening on the day of Pentecost in the upper room? They were together in unity. And it's interesting, in Acts 2.14, it says Peter stood up to speak, but it doesn't say he did it alone. It says they all stood up with him. They're in perfect unity. That's what we know about the day of Pentecost. It is like, verse 2, it is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments. Aaron is anointed high priest. Oil is poured on his head. Oil is a symbol of what? Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. It pours down his beard down the hem of his garment. Jesus shows up in heaven with his sacrifice. It's pronounced good. And he receives, Peter says, Acts 2, verse 33, the gift of the Spirit. And it sheds forth on the church beneath. Is everybody with me? Yes. Nothing could happen on earth till Jesus is installed as heaven's high priest. Oh, I got my remote upside down again. The principle out of this. There will never come a moment when the plan of salvation needs changing. Amen. Won't happen. God set it before the foundation of the world. It has universal appeal and power to reach human hearts through every age, culture, time, and place. Uh, Sean, how does it work with the postmoderns? We'll get to it in the next hour. It has never changed. There's no need to change it. Cultures change all the time. If we think the postmoderns are different than our grandparents, try comparing your grandparents to the serfs who lived in the 1100s in England. And cultures change. But the appeal of the gospel does not. Amen. It always speaks to the human heart. Cultures change all the time. The plan does not. The plan is run from heaven. I'll come back to that after our break. So let's take, I guess it's 15 minutes legally that I have to give you. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.